I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. And now Livewire presents the best of Wikipedia. Tonight's Wikipedia entry, Phil Collins. Reading tonight's entry will be Sean McGrath. Philip Diamond Phil Collins, born January 46, 1751, was an English singer-songwriter, drummer, pianist, singer, and actor best known for his work on behalf of unwed mothers and opening the first Taco Bell in Kenya. <laughs> Collins was born to druids atop the fabled sunstone at Stonehenge. He quickly showed talent in two areas, tap dancing and lasagna. He went to nursing school and in 1970 became the first nurse to swim the English Channel. Once inside France, he discovered that if you played the drums, you could join a band and maybe Peter Gabriel would quit that band. And maybe you could be the lead singer. He joined such a band called Genesis, and together they recorded hits such as Follow You, Follow Me, Invisible Touch, Dirt Road, Sausage Party in the Guest Room, Easy Lover, Pumpkin Pie, Salad in the Morning, Dance Party with Cats, and Dumb Face. Phil Collins retired from music in 2009. He now spends his days making up flavors of ice cream like Boysenberry Fist, Chocolate Bumpy Child, and plain. He is quoted as saying, I'm Phil Collins. I can do whatever I want. Now let's jump off this Ferris wheel and see if God catches us. That was tonight's Wikipedia entry on Phil Collins. Next time, Tyler Hughes explores the Wikipedia page of Martin Scorsese, film director and teenage girl. That's next week. And now back to the show that in 1986 was the opening act for Metallica on the Speed of Sound tour. It's, it's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, the city forged by Phil Collins with a single swing of his axe. It's Livewire. And now the woman who thinks Wikipedia is a Hawaiian foot specialist, Courtney Hameister. Welcome to the show, everybody. 
Tonight we have two great memoir writers on the show. The first is both a writer and a scholar of the memoir genre, the author of Reality Hunger, a Manifesto. David Shields is here. And we have the co-creator of The Daily Show and a woman who has been working on her soon-to-be-released memoir for the past year. Liz Winstead is with us tonight. Very excited. And our musical guest has just released their first CD on Barsook Records to great acclaim. Ramona Falls is here. Before we get to all that, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, our stunning siren of sound, Pat Janowski, and as usual, poet Scott Poole, author of Hiding from Salesmen, will take one single hour, the time it took for Charles Bukowski to remove his hand from the mayonnaise jar after waking up drunk on the floor to write a poem that encompasses all we've learned tonight. So welcome Scott and get to writing. We can't do any of it without our band. Please welcome Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Uh, as I mentioned earlier tonight, we'll be talking to David Shields, and his most recent book is Reality Hunger, a Manifesto. And the book has a lot to say about memoir and fiction and the blurring of the line between those two things. And it's not just in literature where this is happening, it's happening everywhere. He talks about reality TV. We all know reality TV is one of those phrases like the Clean Air Act, that what it actually is is the opposite of what it claims to be, right? <laughs> The real housewives are neither real nor housewives. Uh, America's top model is never America's top model. Uh, the Bachelor may be the only accurate title because they are and will probably always be bachelors because those guys are tools. And actually, a Big Brother, if you've ever seen it, is also a terrifyingly accurate title for that show. Uh, but reality TV is a place where, you know, unless you're an idiot or you've never been exposed to media, you are patently aware that they are manipulating the truth. Uh, unlike some movies, like last year's I'm Still Here with Joaquin Phoenix. Did anybody see that film? Yeah, documentary, sort of. Um, if you haven't seen it, Joaquin Phoenix claims to, to want to retire from acting to become a hip-hop artist. And his friend and director, Casey Affleck, filmed him for two years trying to do this. And you may remember his infamously terrible appearance on David Letterman's show, where he appeared incoherent to the point that Dave entered the interview saying, Well, Joaquin, I'm sorry you couldn't be here with us tonight. <laughs> Um, and it was disastrous. And it turned out that it was all an act. Two years later, when the film comes out, it turned out that Joaquin had pretended for two years to all but very few insiders to be a drug-addicted failed hip-hop artist for this narrative film. And the film, is, it's really hard to watch because you think that you're watching someone sort of decompensating, right? Um, but there's a fascinating moment in the movie for me, once you know that it's faked, um, when Joaquin, he's in the limo on the way home from the Letterman appearance, and he is so sick that he has to get out of the limo. And the camera isn't on him, but you can hear him yelling, crying, what have I done? What have I done? My career is over. And I think in that moment, this is a true documentary film. I think Joaquin actually did think that he had just ruined his career. And that was the most interesting moment of the film for me, when I thought that just maybe I was watching the truth, that it was smack in the middle of that weird, blurred area. 
But then if his reaction was true, wasn't it still all based on a lie, so therefore still a lie? I think that Shields would say it doesn't matter because he believes that everything we show to others is constructed. He even mentions Facebook as one giant constructed memoir, and he has a point. If you ever want to feel awful about your own life, spend a few hours perusing your friend's Facebook posts, (laughs) right? Check out our new Hummer. Oh, God, I wish I had $80,000 and hated the earth. (laughs) Oh, my God, I love my kids. Oh, God, I should have had kids. Why didn't I have kids? Off to be the clumsiest skier in Stad once again. <laughs> oh God, why haven't I been to Stad yet? That last post, by the way, is called a humble brag. It's where you attempt to appear self-deprecating when, in fact, you're bragging. Little little uh, vocabulary word for you tonight. A, a recent Stanford study indicated that perusing friends' Facebook pages actually affects our feelings of self-worth in a negative way. But if we know that we construct our own version of our lives for others, why do we assume they're not constructing their lives for us? So we're faking perfection, but they're all the real deal? Have reality television and Joaquin Phoenix taught us nothing, people? (laughs) Yes, there's play acting going on on Jersey Shore, but there was also probably some play acting going on at last night's dinner party at the Schenkman's. Am I right? (laughs) You know he doesn't really love her. Because who could love someone in that dress? Did you see the color? It's not attractive. It's not attractive on anybody. If we can all remember that, that we're all lying a little, then I I think we would all be a little bit happier. In any case, I highly recommend the book for anyone who's interested in memoir or media or just improving the quality of their Facebook posts. And we'll talk to David Shields about that book later. For now, let's get on to our musical guest. It is the next evolution for Brent Knopf, who used to be the driving force behind the experimental pop trio Menomina. For this first Ramona Falls record, Knopf enlisted the help of 35 musicians, some of them friends, one of them his mom. The band toured last spring with the hottest band on the planet, The National, and some of that heat definitely rubbed off on them. Here with songs from their debut album, Into It, please welcome Ramona Falls to Livewire. Choose to fight 
show Brent Knopf that was the, the man that you heard singing and some other people singing did you want to introduce the rest of the band yeah this is uh, Paul Alcott on the drums Dave Lowenson on the bass Matt Sheehy on the guitar um, so I read that that when you collaborated with Menomina Brent that that was largely done digitally via email and in the, for this record for these 35 people you would have these sessions with them in person. So what, what were some of the benefits for that of you of actually being in the room with someone as opposed to email? Totally. It was part of the reason I worked on Ramona Falls record the way I did is because I wanted that kind of like we're both in the same room, we're both working together. Um, I didn't have any money to pay these friends, so I felt like I could ask for about three hours from each person before I started feeling bad about myself. And um, <laughs> so basically, you know, we, we set up and then the first half, I would kind of just, I'd actually record on the first take and just ask them to improvise along to it. They'd never heard the song before and they'd just like do whatever came naturally. So, and then the first half of the time with them was always them just doing whatever they wanted. And then the second half of the time, sometimes I had some pre 
meditated ideas and that I would ask them to play, stuff that I couldn't play myself. And then, um, then we were done. And then I took it home and edited it all and put it together. Did you ever have to have people, people come back since they'd been improvising and maybe found something that you wanted them to change? No, no, wow. I just, just you know, used what I had yeah. for the most part. I also read that you were a person who loves really uh, blunt feedback. And um, hypothetically, if I were a person who uh, was uncomfortable with that, uh, uh, what, what advice would you give me on, on how to not take things personally? So wait, you're wondering how to, how to tell someone something? You're wondering how to let other people tell you stuff? Well, yeah. I, how did you get to this place where you're completely comfortable with someone just being honest with you? It is Portland, Oregon, after all. The passive-aggressive capital of the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess, you know, it's my upbringing and my, I have, you know, wonderful parents and family and... and what I learned, or the way I'm wired, I guess, is for me, truth-telling is a form of intimacy. It's like, it's like I value you enough to tell you this, you know? Um, I'd much rather know that there's a piece of salad in my teeth, you know, um, early. I think everyone would, really. Um, right, and or so, a piece of salad in your record. I wish we had salad more records. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I don't know. Well, and speaking of your family, your mom plays on the record. Yeah, what does she, she play? She sings on it. Beautiful. Yeah, I was over, you know, at, at her house, and I was like, hey, mom, you should, you should sing on this. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of set up my little rig, and it was fun. Yeah. Well, that was an amazing song. You're going to come back and sing one more for us later. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show. <laughs> Ramona Falls, everybody. Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, nuts and grains. It's loaded with nuts, omega-3s, and organic grains. And while Chip and Dale will be all over this stuff, you don't have to be a small woodland creature to enjoy it. Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. Coming up, writer David Shields, comedian Liz Winstead, poet Scott Poole, and more from Ramona Falls. We'll be right back. Thrift store is awesome. I love the great Isle of Plaid. Yeah, I know. They got everything here. No way. Look, it's a wolf shirt. 
Oh my god, I thought these had been bought out. A wolf sighting. This is a good day. I know it's good. The shirt not only has one wolf, it has three. And a rock outcropping and a moon. Any day with a wolf sighting in it is a good day, my friend. No, any day with three wolf sightings in it is a good day. Any day with three wolf sightings in it deserves a beer out of a beautiful refrigerator. That would be a good day. Three wolf sightings and a beer. Wait, what if the fridge was in the shape of a wolf? You know, had fur and everything? That would be the best, like, ever. Wolf fridge, yeah. That would be the ultimate. I want one. Well said. Yeah, totally. Wolf fridge. A wolf you could open his face and he'd have a brain full of ice cubes and ice cream and that arm and hammer thing? No, no. The arm and hammer thing would go in the main fridge behind his stomach or nipples. Uh, you know, it's, it's not for the brain freezer. Are you sure behind the nipples? Not like in the arm? Yeah, kind of like next to the heart. Like a heart full of ketchup. Uh, like you'd squeeze it and ketchup would come out of four different veins and arteries. And it would be four different kinds of ketchup. Yeah. They should make a ketchup bottle in the shape of a heart you could squeeze. And they should totally make different flavored ketchups. Like a rosemary ketchup or a wolf flavored ketchup. <laughs> or maybe a mustard flavored ketchup. Stop. Stop. Oh my God. There should be a t-shirt of that. A wolf fridge with a ketchup bottle heart and someone squeezing it with four different kinds of ketchup coming out? I'd buy one. Especially if there was four kinds of ketchup and one was mustard-flavored and people couldn't tell if it was mustard-flavored ketchup or just regular mustard. Mm -hmm. Hey, what the hell would wolf flavor taste like? Heck, yeah. Four kinds of ketchup with mystery mustard ketchup flavor and wolf flavor. Just think. Thinking. Thinking. And the verdict is, wow. Yeah. What was the verdict? Uh, you guys have been here for like three hours. Um, are you just going to paw the merchandise or are you going to buy something? Um, we're having a conversation here. Ugh, whatever. She said paw. <laughs> well, like I was saying, before the thrift store vice showed up, yeah. the wolf fridge should have magnets on it. Or I guess like Velcro letters or... Yeah, like Velcro letters that say awesome things like wolf shirts are for lovers. Oh my God, I want a t-shirt of that now. Hmm. Awesome. It could say I heart refrigerators wearing t-shirts. Wait, the wolf fridge could be wearing a wolf shirt of a wolf wearing a shirt that says wolf shirts are for lovers. Wow, I love that. Wow is right. Wow. It's like the universe just opened up like a refrigerator door in the night, and I saw the face of God, and it had a wolf face. Yeah, totally. I can totally see that. Yeah, God with a wolf face? A wolf-faced God. Wow. So are you going to buy the wolf shirt? No, I'm broke. Uh, you, you... Yeah, me too. No money. Okay. Oh, look over there. It's a Darth Vader hat, but it's pink. Whoa, no way. A female Darth Vader. The thought. You know, having Vader babies? I bet they would look kind of like black bowling balls. It's too much to consider. Totes. If you've just joined us, you're tuned in to Livewire Radio, and thanks for listening. 
And no, you're not experiencing deja vu. It's just summer, and our cast and crew are all oiled up by the pool, so this is a rebroadcast of the show. If you're in the Portland area, our live tapings start again on Saturday, September 8th at the Alberta Rose Theater. You can find more information on those shows and how to help sustain LiveWire's future at LiveWireRadio.org. Our next guest book, last book, Reality Hunger, a Manifesto, was called Mind-Bending by the New York Times and the most provocative brain rewiring book of 2010 by GQ. The book is a call to arms, mostly for nonfiction writers, but writers of all stripes to evolve the form into the 21st century or die. Uh, Not the writers wouldn't die, but maybe the form might die. It's not that dire. Uh, David Shields has written nine books, including the best-selling memoir, The Thing About Life is That One Day You'll Be Dead. He also recently edited the anthology, The Inevitable, Contemporary Writers Confront Death. There's kind of a theme there. If you can catch it, let me know. He is the co-author of the forthcoming 500-page tome, The Private War of J.D. Salinger, about which he is not really allowed to speak, but we thought that you should at least know he's working on it. Please welcome David Shields to Livewire. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much, Courtney. So I I wanted, because I I see you really as kind of an expert on memoir, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the form of memoir. And there's been a couple things this year, uh, the the first of which happened in January, and I'm not sure if you read this article, but Neil Genslinger wrote a New York Times article titled The Problem with Memoir, and it opened with the line, a moment of silence, please, for the lost art of shutting up. Uh, and he was essentially saying there's too many memoirs out there. Would you agree with him? I actually saw the piece, and I think it probably sh- should have been titled The Problem with Neil Gensler, I think. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was sort of a predictable shot across the bow of, of memoir, that, that memoir has sort of overtaken other literary forms, and everyone is sort of weary of every person sort of writing their memoir about cat sitting or whatever. (laughs) And I think that to me he was sort of throwing the book out with the bathwater, that he was basically saying, I'll find three really ordinary memoirs and somehow throw the memoir out entirely. I mean, I sort of share his boredom with most memoirs, but I share a boredom with most novels and most lawyers and most doctors. I mean, yeah. most work is really shoddy, you know? M- yeah. Most people are really meretricious, you know? I mean, that's why really great work is called really great, you know? So to me, it, it made sort of, no, it made no sense to somehow try to empty out an entire genre by choosing three pieces. I mean, let's say we chose three columns by Neil Gensler, and, you know, said, Neil Gensler is a complete moron, you know. <laughs> that just wouldn't be a very persuasive argument. You probably have to take four columns by Neil Gensler. <laughs> For you, are there 
Eddie, because it does feel like, you know, before to write a memoir, you had to have, say, saved a country or, you know, uh, or flown, flown a plane in the Second World War. Now, really, anyone can write a memoir. Is there anybody who shouldn't write a memoir? I don't know if you should. I mean... <laughs> but I think it's really a misunderstanding. There is this thing called the memoir with a capital M and a big C for a celebrity. And that's the book, you know, written by Catherine Hepburn and by General Westmoreland and by Abraham Lincoln. And it's, you know, I was born in a log cabin in Springfield, Illinois. And that's the huge, big, glossy memoir. But from the beginning of recorded civilization, thoughtful people have written carefully about their own humble lives. And it's just this complete misunderstanding. And it's a real disservice to ordinary life that somehow if your life is sort of celebrated and sort of media fed, that somehow that life matters. Whereas I share, again, the sort of near Gensler sense that, you know, ordinary memoirs aren't so good, but every life properly understood is completely compelling. And I think what I want to argue for are really thoughtful, really unusual books that take the inscape of a particular person's soul and really try to to investigate that. And the idea that we only want a memoir from, you know, from Hillary Clinton is just is just playing into the whole sort of celebrity tank. Yeah. And you know, I want to push back extremely hard against that. Yeah. Well, and in terms of, of famous memoirs, uh, this year we've also had this Greg Mortensen kerfuffle that's happened where he's the author of Three Cups of Tea and he has, it's, it's come out that he, li- that he had some pretty significant lies in his book. Um, if you read your book, it really doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter that there's lies in it because all memoirs are, are in a sense lies. But are there levels of lying? Like, are, do you find it problematic at all that he had lies in the book? Yeah, I mean, I haven't read the book, I must admit. I'm, I'm, I'm one of four people who hasn't read the three cups of tea. Me, me and, and Neil Gensler, I think. But, <laughs> but, but I haven't read the book, and I, I, I looked online to see the John Krakauer discussion of it. And, you know, it sounds like there were some quite significant evasions of the truth, just flat-out lies. Yeah, he and claimed to have been uh, tra- caught by the Taliban and held hostage, right. and evidently that, that wasn't true. That's right. huge. Of course. And obviously, I don't want... <laughs> I think he was held up by traffic, though, and that was... <laughs> that was a significant problem. <laughs> that those... Those cobble traffic circles will just, right. just kill you. But... Um, but um, obviously, I don't want my book to be the undergirding support for people sort of lying crazily. But I'm terribly fond of this line by G.K. Chesterton, uh, a writer from a while ago, who was asked, what's the... He said, he was asked, what was wrong with the world? And he said, I am. <laughs> and I guess... I really love that sense that, you know, that, that whatever is wrong with the world, you can probably find a shard of that in your own psyche. And instead, this idea that we, you know, stand back um, 
you know, and look at Mortensen's missteps and, you know, sort of accuse him of being, you know, the world's worst criminal. He's obviously done good in the world in general. Or you look, you know, you sort of patronize a la Neil Gensler, these people who have committed the terrible sin of writing about their lives. And so, I mean, I want to, the books I really love are memoirs which really own their own flawedness, you might say. And also, I, the books I really love, the books I try to write and read and teach and talk about, are books which tend to cop to, as well, their own falsity. They, they sort of worry the questions of memory. They use the very frame of nonfiction as a way to meditate on the ephemeral nature of truth. They use a nonfiction frame to ask, What's true? What's real? What's a self? What's knowledge? What's memory? How much can a self know about someone else? And so the books I want to go to bat for aren't books that, that lie. They're books that worry really intelligently what truth is. You actually said you thought there was more possibility in writing a memoir than in writing fiction. Can you explain that? Well, obviously, you know, sort of different strokes for different folks. And, you know, if you find, you know, I'm a big fan of, of this idea that, you know, find the form that releases your best intelligence and really luxuriate in that form. And it could be that, you know, being on radio is your most rich medium. It could be that you really are a fiction writer. And, and for me, for a variety of reasons, I find the nonfiction frame enormously liberating. I'm trying to think, I mean, I certainly want to say it as an absolute, but for me, I'm very aware that, you know, that we're existentially alone on the planet, that I can't know what you're thinking and feeling, and you can't know what I'm thinking and feeling. And the very best work constructs a bridge across the abyss of human loneliness. And it seems to me that works of nonfiction really major in that. They yeah. really, really foreground the question of how the writer solved being, being alive. And that really excites me. Some novels do that, but in my experience, a lot of novels spend too much time entertaining me, whereas I want a book that's sort of teaching me how how to be alive. <clears throat> the anthology is the inevitable contemporary writers confront death, and this has some wonderful pieces in it from people like Joyce Carol Oates, Jonathan Saffron Four, um, and you edited this anthology. And then, of course, uh, we were just speaking largely about Reality, Hunger, A Manifesto. That is also your book. Um, thanks so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs> thanks a lot, David Carl. Shields, everybody. You're listening to Livewire, brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who remind you that the world's honeybee population is dwindling 
and there are things you can do to help, like planting a bee-friendly garden with native flowering plants and not running around screeching like a rabid banshee when a bee comes within 20 feet of you. <laughs> Courtney. Shut up, Tyler. More information can be found at their website, wholefoodsmarket.com. Support for this program comes from the Arthur and Madeline Nantel Memorial Fund, dedicated to rebuilding dilapidated playgrounds in urban areas throughout the country. The Benedict and Marilyn Chesowith Foundation, improving American super soldiers through the use of enriched uranium since 1967. <laughs> from the Colombian drug cartels, supporter of public broadcasting and largemouth bass fishing since 1979. The Judy Ordella Trust, committed to sending twice-daily department-wide emails with links of cats doing cute things. <laughs> Online at, sorry for the mass email, but OMG, you guys, look how cute, lol.org. <laughs> From the Mike and Jennifer Heilbronner Trust, providing low-cost yoga mats and second-hand dream catchers to the general public from a van on Front Street since 2003. <laughs> the Gregory T. Flynn Foundation, offering a cool place to hang out for people who like playing the new Street Fighter and watching old episodes of Red Dwarf on a sweet, gigantic flat screen since his girlfriend dumped him. From your mom. From the Samuel G. and Lori F. Coakley Foundation, supporting the removal of lower back and ankle tattoos of women between the ages of 20 and 26. Online at what a freaking mistake that was. I didn't know the Icelandic symbol for peace was a fist.org. And from listeners like you, handsome, charming, kind-hearted, salt-of-the-earth, dependable, totally help you out if you get caught at the border with a package strapped to your chest, no questions asked, can I borrow the keys to your car, sexy listeners like you. <laughs> Our next guest spends her time of late traveling the country with her stand-up show, My State of the Union. She appears on The Ed Schultz Show on MSNBC. Uh, she's working on her upcoming memoir and responding to crazy people on Twitter. She's the co-creator of The Daily Show and Air America and one of the smartest political satirists in the country. She's appeared on HBO, Comedy Central, and the Aspen Comedy Festival. But now that she's on public radio, she knows she's really arrived. Please welcome Liz Winstead to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Liz Winstead. Thank you. So, you are writing this memoir Uh, now. How's it going, Liz? (laughs) You know... Narcissism goes hand in hand with standing on stage and begging strangers to love you. So being isolated and writing something where there's zero feedback, zero anything, you think your story is like ridiculous, who cares what I have to say, um, it's very hard. It's very hard. And so there is a series of, it's not necessarily a memoir form, it's, there are a series of personal essays, so I guess it's kind of a memoir, but kind of not, and um, I don't know. I think it's fine. Well, it's How's a, that for a plug remote? You know what? My book is fine. Like, keep it in the bathroom. <laughs> It'll it's help. a really different form than stand-up. It's a bitch read. <laughs> it's a good summer bitch read. 
So are you, are you, do you feel at all trepidatious about revealing so much more? It's, I mean, stand-up is, is, you can be a little distant, but this I, is all about your life. Not really. I, I'm, I'm sort of TMI-ish anyway. Like, I have a family that talks about poop with each other constantly, and so um, I don't write about that in the book. But, um, you know, so I, I feel like... I, I don't really... People can judge me if they want. I don't really care. I, I'm very outspoken politically, and I'm sort of outspoken anyway. And I always feel like the more truthful you are, then the more the haters will tell other haters, and they kind of do your work for you. It's like, oh, she sucks. Oh, good. Tell everyone. Perfect. Don't come. I love that. It's like the anti-getting people to come strategy. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like um, Michael Ian, you know Michael Ian Black, mm-hmm. is writing a, a memoir as well, and uh, I was able to interview him, and, and I have this sense that um, if you give everyone all the information, no one has ammunition. That's right. Essentially. That's what I feel like, too. And, you know, my dad, my parents are really conservative, and I grew up in Minnesota, and my dad at some point just looked at me and said, oh, I raised you kids to have an opinion, and I forgot to tell you it was supposed to be mine. (laughs) Which was sort of perfect. Like, the book has a bunch of taboo subjects in it. Um, I got pregnant the first time I ever had sex in high school. And And I tell this story, and it's hilarious. Like, I bring humor to death, abortion... Um, religion. So it's sort of like the elephant in the room, uh, yeah. really, because I think there's a lot of things that you go through in life that are regular things we all have to go through that are scary and, and weird, and no one ever talks about, A, how to get through stuff with humor, and B, just how to get through stuff. You know, a lot of times you walk up against that wall, and you hit the wall, and you go, I'm just going to backtrack. And if you just climb over the wall, get yourself scraped up, you realize you can get through the wall. It's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, is David bored right now? Is he snoring? <laughs> is that Neil guy here? Well, speaking of getting scraped up and crappy things happening, I, I know you, that you lost your mother recently, Ginny, who yes, um, was Ginny. a wonderful woman. Yes, and my head writer, the source of... And uh, it was crazy because she was 89, and my mom is this... But yeah, so my mom... and My family is hilarious, and my mom, um, she's 89, went into hospice, and we're there for nine days. In the ho- sleeping in the room, and if you've ever been through this, you know that you're staring at the person who is not. You're staring at them, and they're like, "Stop staring at me! <laughs> Stop staring at me!" Because you're waiting for anything—a breath, a thing. So it's about day five, and we're, we're, she says, "I need you to gather around the bed." And I have five kids in my family, and we're all there, and we gather around her, and we, we're holding hands, and she's saying, "I had a really nice life. I love you, kids. I love my family," and then she falls asleep. And we're crying and staring, (laughs) staring, still staring. Then somebody goes and checks their cell phone, and we kind of go back to our little assumptions in the thing. (laughs) Three hours goes by, and she wakes up and goes, Ha ha, fooled you, I'm not dead yet. Incredible. She's an incredible, incredible woman. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because I love, my mom was the queen of malapropisms. And one of the things I will miss about her the most is her hearing was going and she would, she would miss things constantly on the news or in, and and I walked into her apartment not so long ago and she, she, she said, I just saw something on TV and maybe you know the answer. Can white people get citrus cell anemia? (laughs) 
And I was like, maybe that's what John Boehner has. <laughs> Mystery solved. Uh-huh. Yeah. So in writing this memoir, are there any stories that you didn't really remember until you started writing them that you sort of unearthed about your life or your family? Well, yeah. I mean, I went into it thinking I was going to tell a whole different set of stories. And then I would start writing one story, and there would be a kernel in the story that actually then blossomed into the real story, and I, and I threw things away. Um, I actually wrote, this was the weird part, is that I extensively wrote about my father's death right before my mother went into hospice. And so it took me three months to write this because I really wanted to honor it. I wanted to honor my family. And um, then when my, when my mom went into hospice, she went into the same room, into the same bed that my dad was in. And my sister said, does it always have to be a competition? <laughs> because that's how my family deals. And in, in the story about my dad, I'll quickly sort of paraphrase it because it was just... Humor in my family was so rich. My dad was a southern gentleman from Mississippi who my mom met in World War II and dragged his ass to, um, to Minnesota. And so my dad, about six months before he died, he sent all of us kids a personal card. And it was this lovely card. And he said, please, well, I shouldn't say, I'm kind of giving it away, but he said, please don't open this till after I'm dead. So, of course, we immediately opened it, all of us. Um, <laughs> And I kept it in my jewelry box because it was really lovely. And so um, when we go to my dad, you know, when he was in hospice, and he was just there for two days, um, he dies, and we're sitting there, and my mom is sitting there, and my dad is sitting there no longer with us. And my mom says, um, I want you kids to tell me what the card said that your dad sent. <laughs> and we're like, Mom, they're personal. She goes, you open them, first of all. <laughs> And then we're like, you know, I guess he told her that, that she sent the cards. And, and so she said, Liz, I want you to start. And I was like, I, can't, I really don't want to do this right now, Mom. I think it's really not the time, and I'd really like to not read this card. And she said, do it for me. <laughs> the Catholic guilt. And so I said, I really, Mom, can we do it? And she said, no. I would like you to really do it. And Liz, I want you to start, and I want everyone to go around. So I took a breath, and I go, okay. The card said, Liz, I love you. You were my favorite. <laughs> and then everyone else said, don't tell the others. <laughs> he had written that in all of our cards. Oh. Knowing we would, A, open them, and B, that my mother was going to do this, and that we would have a laugh the second he was gone. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? <laughs> That's fantastic. It's an incredible story. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so I would suggest all of you do that. Because let me tell you, the catharsis of having this person who is so profound in your life be able to give you a laugh when they no longer have a breath was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had to go into therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so the book will be out. Uh, hopefully, I have two essays left. Uh, so uh, if I can deliver by the end of June, it'll be out probably 2012 February. Great. Yes. Well, we will look forward to it. It's always such Thank a pleasure you. to have Thank you here. Thank you so much. Ladies I love and gentlemen, here. Liz Winstead. Thank you.
That was Liz Winstead, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. And now it's time for the... Audience Haiku! We have asked our audience to expound on three subjects in the form of haiku. Wolves, life stories, and political satire. And Faces for Radio Theater have chosen their favorites and will now read them with the help of Ralph Huntley. Tonight's haiku is, as always, brought to you by the New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their summer ale, Somersault, featuring centennial hops, a sliver of ginger root, an apricot, and finished with oats and a long mash. Somersault. It's like we put summer in a bottle, except it's better than summer, because it's beer. <laughs> Thanks, New Belgium. Okay, Ralph, can I get something really bluesy with an unsatisfying finish? Something tan, sex on a beach. Unfortunately, not my life story. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Uh, Ralph, can I also get something bluesy, jailhouse rockish kind of on down in your luck kind of blues? Locked in prison. So my fear of wolves is now completely justified. Thanks, Chuck. Sorry about the tough break. P.S. Google Prison Wolf if you didn't get that joke. And now, from the audience to read his very own haiku based on a life story, please welcome one of you, Owen. Hello? Can I get something Ramona Falsey, perhaps? <laughs> if the first kid was like the second, there would not have been two, said Mom. <laughs> Sign the second kid. Well done, Owen. Owen, everybody, thank you, Owen. You're listening to Livewire Radio, now carried on great stations around the country, like Jefferson Public Radio in Oregon and California, 
WKCO in Ohio, WNJR in Pennsylvania, and KUOW2 in Washington. If you're listening on one of our new stations, let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at info at livewireradio.org or visit our Facebook fan page. Thanks for listening. And now, once again, please welcome Ramona Falls. Visited Russia, her eyes started folding. I'm sailing one precious, till I had ordered. Hall of Siberia, Dice Loveria, go. She said, It's a little too late. Check to the Nile I started swimming The streets that I follow They found my spring brand With God's purest water The other, the father To heal her She said Too little, too late Sail to Kumoto, spot with the dragons. And when it was over, the tears were wagging. I taught them tricks, said sick dragon, said, brought her up She said, Now, as promised, he's been working for the last 56 or so minutes while we've been playing. Please welcome once again, poet Scott Poole. (laughs) 
What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. What I learned tonight is that Phil Collins stalked me when I was 12 years old. He so wanted me to make Genesis my favorite band. It seemed to be the only viable option at the time for my intellectually thirsty young mind. When people asked me what my favorite band was, it was the closest approximation, but I could never quite bring myself to say it. I imagined discussing Schopenhauer and Kant with Phil Collins, because compared to Van Halen and Journey, Genesis was Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits. (laughs) He so haunted me. Now I look back at those lyrics for the intellectual thirst I thought it might have been there. She's an easy lover. She'll get a hold on you. Believe it. (laughs) She's like no other. Before you know it, you'll be on your knees. I guess now I know why I never quite succumbed to Phil's advances. But still, I'm having problems having a favorite band or a favorite music, and it's still not Phil Collins. So when people ask me what my favorite band is, I just want to say something like Ramona Falls plays. I want them to feel like they're lying on their back in a storm with their love by their side in a wheat field playing the lightning strikes and watching it play out just above their fingertips as if they're directing it. And I want a wool fridge next to them. A wolf fridge that actually barks at the lightning strikes, and when the wolf fridge barks, ice cubes pop out of its mouth and plop into their 12-year-old scotch perfectly. (laughs) But I'm still not ready to say any band is my favorite band. What can help me? Maybe I should investigate this. Maybe I should write a memoir about the fact that I can't possibly do anything like writing a memoir, because if you write a memoir, you have to be able to delineate what you like or don't like, and I'm completely inept at that, and I'm totally sure that I could not write a memoir, so maybe that could be my inroads into writing a memoir. <laughs> like Liz Winstead, I want to say something with certitude. Those pictures weren't my wieners either. None of them. How come there isn't a band called Not My Wieners either? (laughs) Sarah Palin seems so confident, and I have no idea why. (laughs) Just like Donald Trump's hair. No wonder why she wanted to visit it in New York. I bet Donald Trump's hair knows what its favorite band is. Can hair run for president? Is it too late for the hair to declare? I don't care. I'm already tired of this freaking Republican race. Just don't ask me to vote for my favorite band. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, David Shields, Liz Winstead, and Ramona Falls. The Mutton Shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Steve Berlin. Special thanks to Dave Dahl. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Dave's Killer Bread. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you, fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. 
Our senior producer is Robin Tannenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Sean McGrath, and house poet Scott Poole, performers Tyler Hughes, Trisha Ferguson, and Siren of Sound Pachanowski. Our guest writer this week was Jason Rouse. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House Sound by Jeffrey Hilton Simmons. Production management by Drew Flint. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. And this is your announcer, Tyler Hughes, saying, It's closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Wait, wait, don't leave, okay? You, you can stay if you want. Please stay. I'm so lonely. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.